Well, good morning, church. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7. And uh, as you're turning there, I want to just encourage you to pause for a moment and think about how amazing it is that you hold in your hands and that we're studying together this morning a book that is 2,700 years old, over 2,700 years old. What you hold in your hands, people died to protect from those who sought to eradicate it. People were burned alive for translating it into your language so that you could read it. God has very graciously given us his word and led many to give their lives to preserve and proclaim it including its author, the prophet Isaiah, who was sawn in two in order to, as is said in the passage we're going to be studying, to seal up the testimony among the Lord's disciples. Well, last week we finished the first major section of the book of Isaiah, which is the prologue in chapters one through six. And so today we're going to begin studying the second section of the book, which is chapters 7 through 12. And as I mentioned at the beginning of our study of the book of Isaiah, my plan is to do you know, kind of verse-by-verse exposition through uh, the key opening first section, chapters 1 through 6. Uh, we're going to speed up a little bit in chapter 7 through 12. Then we're going to speed up a lot in uh, beginning in chapter 13. And then we'll slow down again in some other key uh, chapters like chapter 53 towards uh, the end end of the book and so we're going to kind of be on the gas and then on the brakes and um, and just kind of go on this journey together through this marvelous book so the second section begins in chapter 7 verse 1 and it goes to the end of chapter 12 we know that the second section ends at the end of chapter 12 because in chapter 13 verse 1 there's a significant transition uh, to a prophecy about Babylon and so uh, chapter 7 through 12 are a key section addressing Judah, Israel, and then the impending invasion by Assyria. So I want to give you just an overview of this section so you kind of know where we're going to be going today and in the weeks to come. Chapters 7 through 12 are going to take us on a journey, and they're going to take us on a journey to three mountain peaks of messianic prophecy, which encourage the remnant, and then to three valleys of judgment, which warn the rebellious. And those peaks and valleys alternate throughout chapters 7 through 12. So if you were to visualize kind of the outline of chapters 7 through 12, it would look like a series of peaks and valleys. It begins with a valley of the refusal in chapter 7 verses 1 through 13, then goes up to a mountaintop where the Redeemer is announced in chapter 7 verse 14 through 16, then back down to a valley of rebellion uh, in chapters 7 and 8, then back up to the mountaintop of the coming everlasting ruler in chapter 9 then back down to a valley discussing the rod of God's anger in chapters 9 and 10 and then finally where we're going to end is up to the final mountain range really not just a mountain but a mountain range in chapters at the end of chapter 10 all the way through chapter 12 where we're going to see the remnant the root the restoration and then the rejoicing and so that's where we're headed in the weeks to come This section 
has a key role to play in the overall structure and outline of the book, and it contains the first of what turns out to be a sharp contrast between two kings. There's a sharp contrast in the book of Isaiah between the wicked king Ahaz, which is discussed here in chapter seven, and the good king Hezekiah, which will be discussed in chapter 36. The Moody Bible Commentary points out, rightly, that there are two major historical narratives in the book, one involving Ahaz, beginning in chapter 7, and one involving Hezekiah, beginning in chapter 36. And so the Moody Bible Commentary, and I, I love the way they've kind of broken these two narratives down and explained it, is these two sections create a contrast between a terrible decision and a good decision. Chapter 7, verse 1 begins a narrative of a sign rejected. Ahaz chooses to trust the nations rather than God. And then in chapter 36, verse one, we'll see a narrative of a sign accepted when Isaiah chooses, or Hezekiah, I'm sorry, chooses to trust the Lord. And as the commentators of the Moody Bible Commentary uh, point out, chapters seven through 35 really emphasize judgment, whereas Chapters 36 through 66 emphasize salvation. Now, there's salvation and judgment passages in both of those sections, but the section which follows the wicked choice of Ahaz is a lot darker. There's a lot of emphasis on judgment, whereas the section towards the end of the book, which follows the good choice of King Hezekiah, emphasizes blessing and salvation. So through the contrasting examples of wicked Ahaz and godly Hezekiah and even woven into the very structure of the book there is a clear message and it's a very simple one faith brings blessing unbelief brings disaster faith brings blessing but unbelief brings unmitigated disaster and so the call of the book of Isaiah is to believe to trust in the Lord as is said in the book of Proverbs, to trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding, to acknowledge him in all your ways so that he can make your path straight. Faith brings blessing, unbelief brings disaster. Well, with that kind of macro theme and structure in mind, let's begin our survey of chapter seven through 12, and we're gonna read beginning in chapter seven, verse one, and read the first section, which goes to verse 13. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shear Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, take care and be calm and have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, the son of Ramalia. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has planned evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. 
Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you will not stand firm in faith, you surely shall not stand at all. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? This section begins in a prophetic valley with the refusal. The refusal to trust in God. The events of chapter 7, verses 1 through 13 take place in 735 to 734 BC when Syria and Israel wanted the southern kingdom of Judah to join them in a military alliance against the threat from Assyria. When Ahaz refused to join this alliance, the kings of Israel and Syria invaded Judah and tried to capture Jerusalem, intending to slaughter the Davidic dynasty and set up a proxy king, someone that is named only as the son of Tabiel, so that a proxy king that they could control would bring Judah into the military alliance and the three of them, then the three kingdoms together could fight the Assyrians. So it was two kingdoms against one. And Ahaz and the people were, as verse two says, shaking with fear the way trees shake when they're blown by a mighty wind. They were quaking with fear because they knew they were no match for the combined armies of Israel and Syria. They had to turn to someone for help. So the question was, to whom? To whom will they turn when the odds are overwhelmingly stocked, st stacked against them? This, by the way, is something that believers face periodically down throughout history. There are times where there are powerful evil forces arrayed against us, and we know we cannot withstand them. We know their power is too great. And so we must turn to help to someone or something. And the question always is, to whom will you turn when the odds are stacked against you? In whom will you put your trust? In whom will you seek your deliverance and your protection and your salvation? In whom will you trust? Ahaz was confronted with that choice. And God sends Isaiah to meet Ahaz and tell him, Ahaz, don't be afraid, don't quake, don't worry, don't be afraid, I will deliver you, trust in me. And God even graciously tells Ahaz, Ahaz, you can ask for any sign, any proof that I will deliver you. You can ask for something as high as heaven or as deep as Sheol. Ask anything, I will give you whatever sign you request to show you that I will deliver you. The invitation is given. Trust in me. And God even graciously says, and I'll prove to you that your trust is warranted. What does Ahaz do? Astoundingly, he responds, I will not ask. Ahaz 
Ahaz, instead of trusting the Lord, turns for help to guess who? The king of Assyria. Here you have the Assyrian Empire is rising and beginning to conquer other nations, and so all the nations around it are very afraid. Israel and Syria form an alliance. They want Judah to join the alliance. Judah won't join the alliance. They try to force Judah to join the alliance, and Judah, Ahaz, the king of Judah, chooses to ask for help from the Assyrian king. He chooses a side, and it's the Assyrian side. 2 Kings chapter 16 records this. Guess what Ahaz does? In order to get the Assyrian king to help him, he first of all, he pays a huge tribute. He pays a huge sum of money. But he, he didn't just stop there. The Assyrians demanded a clear sign of subjugation and of loyalty. And the sign that they demanded was for Ahaz to place an idol to the Assyrian gods in the temple in Jerusalem. And that's what he did. But it didn't stop there. They required Ahaz to offer his own son as a burnt sacrifice to that pagan idol. And he burned his son in the fire. 2 Kings chapter 16 says he caused his son to pass through the fire. This was the price of the protection. Ahaz refuses to trust Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of loving kindness, and the host of the heavenly armies, and puts his trust instead in the wicked pagan king of Assyria. By the way, you may ask, well, why did God tell Isaiah to take his son, Shear Jashub, with him to talk to Ahaz? It's because Ahaz was standing there with empty arms. His son is dead, having been sacrificed to the idol. Isaiah brings his little boy, whose name, Shear Jashub, means the remnant will return. And this is a powerful visual admonition to Ahaz that if he will trust in Yahweh, there will be a remnant to return. If he trusts in the king of Assyria, you'll be desolate and childless. And yet Ahaz refuses. By inspiration of God, Isaiah says in chapter, in verse nine, if you will not stand firm in faith, you, sh you will not be able to stand at all. And there's two terms there. I'm actually, um, though I preached from the New American Standard, when I read that verse, I actually read the English Standard Version translation. The ESV and the NIV, I think, really capture the play on words there because in Hebrew, there's two words that sound nearly identical and one means to stand firm in faith and the other means to stand at all. And so the ESV rightly translates, if you don't stand firm in faith, you won't be able to stand at all. This is a, a very important lesson that really is, goes far beyond this context to any context. If you won't stand firm in faith, you won't stand at all. You cannot compromise or appease your way to peace with evil. You must stand firm in faith or you won't stand at all. And so we, when confronted with satanic lies and the great powers of evil, we stand firm in faith. We don't give ground, we stand our ground. Ahaz didn't do that, though. He compromised. In fact, he 
did something unthinkable. He refuses to trust in the Lord and places his trust in the wicked pagan king of Assyria. When he did so, that made the rebellion of the people official. They had already, for generations, been turning away from God spiritually and morally, but now their king had chosen to trust Assyria over Yahweh. So God gave them over. God gave Ahaz and the people over to their own folly and wickedness. I want you to notice something. Look in verse 11 when the Lord is speaking to Ahaz. He says, ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. In verse 11, he's, God is still saying, Ahaz, I'm your God. But notice the switch in language after Ahaz refuses. Look down to verse 13. Then he said, listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? See, now Isaiah, speaking prophetically, says, stop saying, Ahaz, this is the Lord your God. Now he says, now you're trying the patience of my God. God is disassociating himself from Ahaz. Notice also that there's a dramatic switch between God addressing Ahaz directly in verses 11 and 12, but in verse 13, God turns his face away from Ahaz and starts addressing the nation as a whole. And there's a switch from the singular to the plural there in verse 13. Ahaz has made his choice. Yahweh is not his God and he will not trust in him. Ahaz had rejected the living God and so God rejects him. This is a moment of great tragedy. But people today are making similar choices as Ahaz when under pressure when confronted with evil, when dealing with all of the issues of this world, they are confronted with a choice. In whom will you put your trust? And many people turn away from the God of living hope and put their trust in wicked human beings. This is the Valley of Judgment. So again, as we've been asking it throughout our study of Isaiah, we ask, is there any hope? And the next section takes us out of the valley of, refu of refusal and up to the mountain of the revelation of the Redeemer. Section one was the refusal. Now in chapter seven, verses 14 through 16, we're gonna see the revelation of the Redeemer. Ahaz had refused to believe any sign in heaven or earth. So God switches from addressing Ahaz to addressing the whole nation and he tells them that he himself will give them a sign. Ahaz has refused to even ask for a sign. So God says, I myself will give all of you a sign. And here is the sign I will give. Verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. I want to ask the question, this 
Because we preach on this passage a lot at Christmas time, I want to take a few minutes to address a question which you may have as you read the text, and especially you may have if you've kind of read some of the liberal scholarship out there. Is this a prophecy of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, or is this just referring to something that happened in Isaiah's day? Well, the answer to that is very clear in Scripture. We know that this is a prophecy of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ because just a couple chapters later in chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, Isaiah specifically says, a son will be born to us, and that son will be mighty God. No doubt about it in context. We also know for sure that Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 is a prophecy of the virgin birth because Matthew chapter 1 verse 23 explicitly says it's a prophecy of the virgin birth and that it was fulfilled when Christ came. So Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 and Matthew 1, 23 should end all argument about whether or not this is a prophecy of the virgin birth. Why is there even any controversy about it? Well, because liberal scholars, translation, unbelievers who study the Bible for some reason, you know, they, they, they want to get a salary for studying the Bible without believing it. Liberal scholars have tried to deny the prophetic significance of, this, of these verses. Well, why? Because once you acknowledge that something written 700 years before Christ prophesied the virgin birth of Christ, you have to believe it all. And, and follow it all and obey it all. And they don't want that. So they've got to find a way out of it. Well, so what do they do? Well, they say, wait, the Hebrew word Alma used here can simply refer to a young maiden. This is just saying, look, a young woman's going to have a child. Happens all the time, doesn't it? Young women having children. Well, there's several problems of that with that. And the first is pretty contextual. In context, God says, ask for a sign as high as heaven or as deep as Sheol and then Ahaz refuses so God says well I will give you a sign myself a young woman will have a baby it's like what (laughs) no this is a sign and it's a sign as high as heaven and it reaches down to the depths of Sheol itself in salvation The Hebrew term, by the way, always means, yes, a young maiden, but a virgin young maiden, and there are no exceptions to that. Unless there be any doubt about the meaning of the term, in the Greek translation called the Septuagint, which Christ himself quotes and the apostles quote, the word used here is parthenos, and that is a technical term for a virgin, and it is unmistakable and undisputable. So, It is very clear. This is a prophecy about a virgin birth. So the interpretive difficulty in these verses is not, is this a prophecy of the virgin birth? We know it is. The real interpretive question for believers is whether or not this is an example of dual fulfillment, something which has an initial fulfillment in the time of the prophet and then a far fulfillment in the time of the birth of Christ. In other words, is there a near fulfillment in Isaiah's day which foreshadowed the final fulfillment of the virgin birth of Christ? And my answer to that in regard to chapter 7, verses 14 through 16, is no, but in regard to chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, is yes, and I want to explain that to you. Those who 
Let's, uh, let's just read uh, chapter eight, verses one through four so that you'll understand kind of the context. Turn over to chapter eight, verses one through four. It says, then, so notice this is then later on, then the Lord said to me, take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters, swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. And I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Zebekariah. So I approached the prophetess and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, name him Maharshalal Hashbaz, which by the way means swift is the booty and speedy is the prey. For before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So there are those, and including some very good and believing scholars, so I'm disagreeing with them, but I'm affirming that they are good and believing scholars. There are those who think there is a near fulfillment of chapter seven in the time of Isaiah. And they point primarily to two things. They point to verses 15 and 16, Isaiah chapter seven, verses 15 through 16, and say that those two verses are talking about the capture of Damascus and the invasion of Samaria, which occurred in 732 by the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser III. And then they point to chapter eight, verses one through four, which we just read, which describes the birth of Isaiah's son, Maharshal al-Hashbaz. And because there's some similarities in language, they believe that Maharshal al-Hashbaz is a typological near-term fulfillment of the greater fulfillment in Christ. In other words, they think that in, in Isaiah 7, there's a prophecy, there's a near fulfillment in chapter 8, and, and then there's the final fulfillment in Christ. But I don't think that chapter 7, verse 14, and chapter 8 are talking about the same child at all. To say that chapter 7, verse 14, and chapter 8, verse 3 are referring to the same child requires positing without evidence in the text that Isaiah's first wife had died and he had remarried. Because we're already introduced in chapter 7 to a son of Isaiah named Shear Jashub. So if Isaiah already has a son by his wife, she cannot be then the Alma, the Parthenos, the virgin who conceives. So the view that chapter 7 has a near fulfillment has to presuppose that Isaiah's wife died and that he remarries a young maiden virgin and then has a son through her. I don't think this is the case and I want to just share a few reasons. The woman Isaiah approaches, right, in chapter 8 verse 3 he has a son with her born in the normal way and the woman which the text says he approaches is called the prophetess well that is a term which was used to refer to the wife of a prophet and the grammar indicates that she was already the prophetess before she conceived this child so this can't be a new marriage for Isaiah and the woman can't be an Alma a young virgin maiden in fact, it seems, based on the text, that the mother of Mahar Shalal Hashbaz is the same woman who bore Shear Jashub, who we met earlier in chapter 7. And if so, she can't be the mother prophesied in 7 verse 14, for that woman is called an Alma, which refers to a virgin maiden. I want to give you a few other reasons. There are, yes, there are some 
linguistic similarities between chapter seven, verses 14 through 16, and then chapter eight, verses one through four, but they're clearly talking about two different children. They have different names. They're born in different circumstances. Their births are said to have different meanings. In chapter seven, the mother gives the name. In chapter eight, God tells Isaiah to name the child. Different names, different contexts, different prophetic meanings, and different methods of naming. So I agree with the conclusion the Moody Bible Commentary makes regarding the child Emmanuel in chapter 7, verse 14, and the child Mahar Shalal Hashbaz in chapter 8, verse 3, and their summary is, their conclusion is this, quote, clearly these are distinct prophecies and different children. Distinct prophecies and different children. Well, you may be saying, but wait a minute. It does seem like chapter 7, verses 15 through 16 are connecting the virgin birth to the events which happened in the time of Isaiah. And you are correct, they do, but I want to explain how they do. Look again at chapter 7, verses 15 through 18. He, that is Emmanuel, will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. My friend who's the president of Masters University, Dr. Abner Chow, points out a really key thing about the grammar of verses 15 through 16. And the grammar, he says, shows that God is explaining how the events which take place in the time of Isaiah are going to affect the promised child who will be born later. This, these two verses are asking the question, when the Messiah comes, why will he be born into poverty instead of as the prince who's coming, why won't he come into the wealth of a kingdom? Why will he be born in poverty? In verse 15, it says that the promised child will eat curds and honey. What does curds and honey mean? Well, throughout the Old Testament, it is referring to situations in which the agriculture of Israel failed and the only thing they have left to eat is curds from their sheep and wild honey that they find out in the briars and the thorns. So eating curds and honey is a symbol of being in abject poverty. So verse, 15, verse 14 says, a virgin will bear a child and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And verse 15 says, and he will spend his toddler years in abject poverty. Why? Verse 16 gives the answer. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Verse 16 begins with a Hebrew term which means for or because. Verse 16 is an explanation of why the situation described in verse 15 exists. Why is the Messiah born in poverty? It's because the northern kingdom of Israel and their northern neighbor, Syria, had been left desolate before the Messiah's toddler years. Why is the promised child born in such poverty that his diet as a toddler will be curds and honey? The answer is the desolation of Israel and Syria that take place before that time. By the time Christ was a toddler living where? In Nazareth, in northern Israel, very close to the Syrian border. That area that he spent those young years in had been oppressed and impoverished by foreign powers for centuries. 
First, the Assyrians desolated that area in the time of Isaiah. Then the Babylonians desolated that area. Then the Persians and then the Romans. Why is the Messiah born in poverty? Because this area had been so desolated before the Messiah's toddler years. How did that happen? Because the nation rejected God. See, Ahaz refuses. He rejects the sign. He turns away from the Lord, puts his trust in Assyria. And so God says, look, I am going to give you, O house of David, I'm going to give you a sign. You will know when the Messiah has come because he will be born of a virgin. He will be God with us and he will be born in abject poverty, in a stable, laid in a manger, no place for him in the inn. The sign God gives the house of David is that the Messiah will be born of a virgin, born into poverty, and why is he born into poverty? Because of the desolations which will occur between the time of Isaiah and the birth of Christ. He's telling them, desolations are coming from my time, Isaiah is saying, until the arrival of Messiah. These poverty conditions will still exist when he is born, and even into his toddler years. What did God want them, how did God want them to respond? What, what was the application of this prophecy for them back then? Well, I think it was two things. I think God wanted two responses. The first is contrition. Contrition, why? Because God is telling them, your wickedness is going to create a desolation which will last all the way until the coming of the Messiah and the Messiah himself will suffer because of you. He will be born in poverty because of what you're doing now. He will, as it were, bear your sins. You need to know there's consequences of your rebellion. This will affect not only you, not only your children, but even your Messiah. Second response is hope. Because the Lord is telling them that even though centuries of desolation are coming, the Messiah will still arrive. He'll still come. He's not going to look on the desolation of the land and say, forget him. He's going to come. And he will be wrapped in swaddling clothes by that virgin and laid in a manger. And then he will live a perfect life. He will die, as is described in verse 53, to bear their sins and he will rise again, which as we're gonna see throughout all of the eschatological prophecies, require a living Messiah. This is hope. Even the final refusal of Ahaz didn't mean all hope was lost because the Messiah is still going to come. The Redeemer will come. He will be born of a virgin. He'll be born into poverty, in a stable, in a manger, no room for him in an inn, but he'll still come because... He loves, and because God had sworn a promise to Abraham and to David, and he will keep it. The only hope the remnant had after the downfall of the nation was this, the messianic hope. So we started in a valley of this terrible refusal, but now we've been lifted up to the peak of the promise of the Redeemer. Now we're gonna sink back down into another valley of judgment that I've labeled the rebellion. And I'm gonna read, you're gonna have to kind of go quickly with me as I read all the way from chapter seven, verse 17, all the way through chapter eight, verse 
22, the scripture says, give attention to the public reading of scripture. We're gonna do that together. Isaiah 7, 17. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on your father's house such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the remotest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, and they will all come and settle on the steep ravines, on the ledges of the cliffs, on all the thorn bushes and all the watering places. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor hired from regions beyond the Euphrates, that is, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and it will also remove the beard. Now in that day, a man may keep alive a heifer and a pair of sheep, and because of the abundance of the milk produced, he will eat curds. For everyone that is left within the land will eat curds and honey. And it will come about in that day that every place where there used to be a thousand vines valued at a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. People will come there with bows and arrows because all the land will be briars and thorns. As for all the hills which used to be cultivated with the hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place for pasturing oxen and for sheep to trample. Then the Lord said to me, take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters, swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. And I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Zebechariah, so I approached the prophetess and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, name him Maharshalal Hashbaz for before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Again, the Lord spoke to me further saying, inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoice in resin and the son of Ramalia, now therefore behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks, then it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck. And the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, O peoples, and be shattered. And give ear all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand. For God is with us. For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying... You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy and he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. But to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. And I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. It's a reference to the coming of Messiah. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. 
They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. This is the rebellion. This is the rebellion. In chapter seven, verse nine, God had warned Ahaz that if he did not stand firm in faith, he wouldn't be able to stand at all. And that's exactly what's gonna happen. Ahaz rejected God, put his trust in Assyria, and so a fall, a downfall is coming. And in chapter seven, verse 17, God tells him that if Ahaz thought the civil war which resulted in the division of the southern and northern kingdoms had been a terrible time and a bad time, the worst time in history, what's coming is going to make that seem like it was nothing. The domination of the Assyrians would be even worse. Here Ahaz is fearing the king of Israel and the king of Syria and he chooses the Assyrians. He has gone from something bad to something much, much worse. Tim Dane comments, quote, if Ahaz thought Syria and Israel were bad problems, he would soon find out how brutal the Assyrians really were. In verses 18 through 25, God tells Ahaz the consequences of his tragic decision would be being overrun with invaders from the north, that's the bee from Assyria, and Egyptian raiders from the south, the fly, and he tells him that the Assyrians are gonna come and subjugate and humiliate all of the men of Judah by shaving their head, their beard, and their legs, making them appear like the enslaved eunuchs who were chattel slaves in the courts of Assyria. The Assyrians are gonna come and say, you're all eunuch slaves now shaving their head, their beard, the hair off their legs to make them look like eunuch slaves. And so the prophecy is that the land is gonna be overrun and devastated. In fact, the only remaining industry will be shepherding. So all they'll have to eat is curds and honey. All the vineyards will become overgrown with thorns and briars, which alludes back to the curse on Eden to drive home that point and to share it with the nation. In chapter eight, verses one through four, God tells Isaiah to take a gileon. It's a large placard or a large sign and to write on it in very plain letters, swift is the booty, speedy is the prey, mahar, shalal, hash, baz. Then he tells him to name his son that. Isaiah's second son is to be a continual living testimony to the judgment which was coming on the nation. His first son was a reminder that the remnant will return. His second son is a living reminder that Israel and Judah will be the booty, the prey of the Assyrian invaders. And then in chapter eight, verses five through eight, God says that because the nation rejected him, the Assyrians are gonna sweep over the land up to the neck like the overflowing of the Euphrates. He says, look, you've rejected Shiloh, this gentle flowing stream. You've rejected me, who brings you living water, this gentle Lord. You've rejected me, and you've chosen the mighty Euphrates. While the mighty Euphrates, the king of Assyria, is gonna overflow its banks and sweep over all of you, and you'll be standing in it up to your necks leaving only a remnant. You know, whenever God removes his hand of blessing from a nation, there is a danger that believers will try to fix things in the wrong way. In Isaiah 8, chapter, verses 9 through 10, God reminds Isaiah that he, and not the powers 
of this world are in control. And he warns Isaiah against being swept up in all the swirling rumors and conspiracy theories that always accompany the downfall of a nation. When a nation starts to go into downfall, everybody starts to try to figure out why and what's going on. And there's all these rumors and conspiracy theories floating around that people are getting swept up in. And God warns Isaiah, don't go there. Since so much of that type of thing is happening in our own day, I want to close by reading again Isaiah 8, 11 through 13. Listen carefully what is said to Isaiah. For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts Yahweh of the heavenly armies whom you should regard as holy and he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread and then there's hope if you will fear him verse 14 says then he shall become a sanctuary he'll become a refuge beloved if our society falls the way this ancient society fell it won't be because of some conspiracy whether that conspiracy is the deep state or the far right or the far left. If our society falls, it will not be because of conspiracy. It will be because of judgment. So don't fear what they fear. Rather, fear him. And then he'll be a sanctuary to you. If our society falls, it will be because of judgment. And let's be honest, there are reasons for judgment, aren't there? God may judge this land for the slaughtering of millions of babies. God may judge this land for embracing the moral perversions which doomed Sodom and Gomorrah. God may judge this land for the violations of marriage vows in the millions which have left millions of children functionally fatherless as social orphans. You should fear him. Fear not the defendant's fear the judge he should be your fear and your dread and if he will be your fear and, his, and your dread he will also be your hope he shall be your fear he shall be your dread and then he shall become a sanctuary a refuge for you Lord help us to not fear what the world fears to not fear what the unsaved fear, but to fear you. Knowing that you are the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Judgment is in your hands. Lord, if we are to fall, it is because you ordain a fall. Lord, if we are to stand, it is because you held us up. So Lord, help us to fear and dread you only so that you will also be our refuge, our sanctuary. Help us to learn these lessons in Jesus' name. Amen. In a couple minutes, we'll be sharing in the right hand of